Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken Cruzado, and I have the privilege of filling in for my pastor, Pastor Ron, who normally hosts this radio show. Yesterday, I did the same thing, and so today we continue. I'll fill in for Pastor Ron on the show, but we will continue doing what we normally do here. This is a Bible question and answer show, so that means um, I'm going to give you the phone numbers. 210-340-9585, 210-340-9585. The toll-free number is 877-630-5757, 877-630-5757. We have an email address, questions at calvarysa.com. Questions, plural, at calvarysa.com. You can submit your questions via email that way. If you have a church app, you can submit questions there. Or you can use. You can also use the KSLR mobile app to call into the show and ask your question on the air. Okay, it's Tuesday, and that means we, we really don't have anything going on here at Calvary Chapel. We'll jump right into the show. Let me say one thing quickly. Uh, Pastor Ron says hello he sends his love to the radio listening audience. He misses you dearly, and he can't wait to get back. He's not yet there, so you can keep him in your prayers. Uh, making progress, but not yet ready to come back in the meantime. Oh, next man up, we pick up where we left off. And so well, let's continue with the show. I gave you the numbers. We do have some questions already submitted. Let's jump right in. Our first one is from Jim. My brother-in-law was raised Catholic and no longer agrees with the Catholic Church. He continues to take his son to Catholic Mass because of the guilt he feels by not doing so and because his son will at least be taught good values. There's so much I want to say to my brother-in-law about this. Should I approach him? If so, how should I approach him and what should I say? Jim, uh, this is a great question and I think a a pretty simple answer. Uh, Yes, you should talk to him, especially since it sounds like he's already shared with you some insight into his reasoning behind taking his son to Catholic Church. When he says he he wants his son to at least be taught good values, I would tell him about Jesus. First, Jim, start with your brother-in-law and and tell him this is not about religion. It's not even about church. This is about Jesus Christ and entering into a love relationship with him. It simply means you need to acknowledge that you are a sinner like all of us. And the Bible says that Jesus is eager and he's willing to forgive anyone of their sin. 
if they come to him and ask for forgiveness, if they surrender their life to him. That's what the Bible calls being born again. Now, I was raised Catholic, and so your brother-in-law being raised Catholic probably has a misunderstanding if he even has heard the term being born again. Now, there are some Catholics that may be born again, but it's not common because the Catholic Church, by and large, doesn't teach that you need to be born again. But you have the opportunity, Jim, to share with your brother that this is what the Bible simply says. And I would point him to John chapter 3. Nicodemus is a perfect example of the most religious teacher of Israel at the time. And Jesus simply told him that you must be born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. And so that's, Jim, that's what I would do. Yes, you should talk to your brother-in-law. And this will give you the opportunity to also talk to your brother-in-law about being saved so that he can share more than good values to his son. I think when a person understands the treasure we have in Christ, it really is everything that we've been looking for. Being born again, you can explain to him, Jim, is Jesus filling that emptiness in our hearts that we've been looking to fill all of our lives. And unfortunately, religion, it teaches us that our works can fill that void, but it never satisfies, it never lasts, because you never know if you're doing enough. Religion is man's way of reaching up to God through works, trying to attain to his righteousness, where a relationship with Jesus Christ, Jim, is simply God reaching down to us. And Jesus did that by dying on the cross making a way for you and I who don't deserve to be saved to enter into a, a love relationship with Jesus. That's how you should approach, and that's what you should say. Open up your Bible to John chapter 3 and, and share with your brother-in-law about Nicodemus so that he can get saved and that he can share more than good values to his son. And I think on a side note, Jim, Again, I, I can speak from a little bit of experience here because I understand w how culturally tied religion can be uh, to people, especially, like, I'm Filipino. We grew up in a, in a house where our Filipino culture is intricately woven with Catholicism. And when I became the the one in my family that was first saved, um, you know, it, it was it was difficult. It was difficult, especially for my parents, because uh, what they perceived me doing was basically turning my back, not only on my family, but turning my back on my culture. And, and that made things awkward, it made things difficult, but all I kept telling them was the same thing, giving the Holy Spirit the opportunity to work in their hearts. And one by one by one, everyone in my family got saved, not because of anything that I did, but because of the Holy Spirit working in me and through me. And that's what he wants to do in all of us. So, Jim, you live your life in his example for your brother-in-law to see something in you that he doesn't see in himself. And, and Titus chapter 2 tells us that when people are obedient to the Word of God, it becomes attractive, attractive to those that are watching because they'll want the same Jesus that you have. Jim, your brother-in-law, will see this in you. And then as he gives his life to the Lord, his son will see it in his father. And there's just nothing better than that. Nothing better than that, Jim. I, I hope that makes sense. Thank you for your question. I understand. I know from time to time we get calls here about something similar. I understand. You know, the city that we live in, there is a strong Catholic contingent 
and it is again interwoven into our culture but i think jesus makes it a lot simpler than we understand it to be religion has so many questions that we don't have answers to so many variables that don't make sense but the bible is very simple and very clear you must be born again next question is from anonymous the bible says that the coming of the lord will not happen until after the falling away or apostasy and the man of sin uh, the son of perdition is revealed which is stated in second thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3 is the son of perdition the devil is that taking place before the rapture so let, let me read the verse. Second uh, Thessalonians 3 says this. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So to answer you to your question, Anonymous, this verse is referring to the Antichrist, not the devil. This, some translations use the son of perdition. I'm reading from the, the NIV, which uses the man of lawlessness. This is the man that's doomed to destruction. But your second question here about the timing of this, when it takes place, is answered in, in verse 4. He will oppose and he will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. And he will, and he sets himself up as God in God's temple. That means there's going to be a literal temple in the last days. He's going to be proclaiming himself as God. And verse 4 tells us that these things will not happen until the man has revealed himself. And so, is this taking place before the rapture? No. We won't see this happening. This will happen when the man reveals himself and midway through, he will make himself known. That's midway through this, the, the seven-year tribulation. It's interesting, though, because that verse 4 re refers to a literal temple that will be erected. Now, we don't have that yet today. And I, I do believe we are in the last days, but we, not, we are not in the time of tribulation that begins after the rapture. And it's during that time, midway through, that the Antichrist will reveal himself, where he causes the uh, abomination there in the temple, proclaiming himself to be God. You know, the, the, the study of the end times is called eschatology, Anonymous. And this study of the end times, this eschatology, is something that I think is vital to every single Christian, because, and this isn't your question, Anonymous, but I think there's a practical application here that needs to be stated. Whenever we talk, or whenever the scriptures speak about the end times, the study of the end times, there is a direct correlation to what we believe will happen in the end and how it relates to our lives today. Peter writes, how then shall we live? Considering what's going to happen when the when the, the the everything will be burned up, what we believe about the end times directly affects and drives how we live today. So, anonymous, I think this is very important to have a clear understanding of what Second Thessalonians is talking about. The son of perdition is not the devil. This is the Antichrist who will reveal himself, not before the rapture, but after. That's why we thank God that we're not going to be around during that difficult time. Last thing I'll say about this is this should drive us today. When I said, how now shall we live? Well, we should redeem the time by making the most of every opportunity, Paul writes. And that means what we do is Share Jesus with everybody so that they don't have to go through this difficult time. Thank you for your question, Anonymous. Let's go to our phone lines. We've got Tanya from San Leandro. You're on the air. 
Hi, Pastor Ken. How you doing? Hi, Tanya. I'm doing well. She's calling from San Leandro, California. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, old, you're old neck of the woods over here. Yeah, <laughs> That's right. It's good to hear your voice, Tanya. Yeah, you know, I, I normally have been, I've been serving um, one of our neighbors here during this time. And luckily today her daughter's there. So I, you know, I thought, well, let me, let me, let me chime into the radio program because I've been, I've been having a, a question okay. uh, and I wanted to get your insights and uh, I'm, I'm also praying for Papa. So I hope he's doing better. Thank you. Um, yes. So I um, wanted to know about mentorship. Um, and, and of course, you know, I, I have um, some women that I mentor, but I need um, some direction in the sense that <clears throat> what I have found recently is people that are looking for a mentor, generally there's something going on in their lives. Yes. They already know what they want to do. And I don't want to say like, look, and I always say, look, if you are willing to um, open up your Bible and read what God has to say, not what Tanya has to say, because she's a flawed individual who, you know, I'm a sinner. Um, but if you're not willing to let God minister to your heart, is it, I don't want to say it's like a waste of time, but, but do, do we just say until you're ready to let God minister to your heart? And, and I'll, I'll give you a good example. Like, uh, if somebody has marital issues with their husband and sure. they already in their mind are already out the door and I always say, look, you know, there's no biblical grounds for what, you know, you, you want to do. Uh, just because he makes you mad or is a jerk, not a reason to, to get divorced. But I have found recently that people want what they want, regardless Absolutely. of what God's Word has said. So You're is, right. it worth, is it worth going down those roads with them to, to, to if their minds are already made up, or do we continue to still, hey, you know, open the Bible, let's read what it says. If they're willing to do that, should we, and of course, I'm prayer. I'm taking this all to prayer. I'm taking this, you know, God, what do you want me to do? But sometimes I feel like I don't have a, a clear answer, and I don't know if it's different for every people, every person. So I was just curious, how do you a- approach this w- when you have people who they're just set on, they're going to do what they want right. to do regardless of what the Bible says. So how do you approach that? Just look- Great question, Tanya. Great question. And, and I think your discernment, the Holy Spirit is already speaking to you about this because you are absolutely right. When people, people who are professing Christians, are, are set in what they're going to do, they're no longer interested in doing what the Spirit is leading them to do. They just want justification, biblical justification for whatever they want to do. And, and God simply will not bless the flesh. That, that's not how God operates. And so it sounds like your discernment is saying that there really is no purpose, no value to sitting down with somebody and talking to them or guiding them when they've already made their mind up of what they want to do. And you're right. You're right. Now, we want to give the Holy Spirit the opportunity to change their hearts, sure. We open up the Bible and we point them to John chapter 14, John chapter 16. Uh, just one example. This is where Jesus himself describes the ministry of the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us, to convict us of our sin and of righteousness and of judgment. However, if when we open our Bible and we tell them what the scriptures say, they're unwilling to listen. Well, when they stop listening, we stop talking. It's simply that you've got to leave it alone, Tanya. And we love people. We want to see God working in their hearts. Believe me, I know. I know your heart. Uh, we deal with the same exact thing in counseling. But when I'm sitting with somebody and I tell them what the Bible says, it's not what I think. And it's not our church's opinion. This is the word of God. This is the clear direction that he says to go. And if you choose not to go that way, there's nothing I can do. To help you, and I and I and I end the conversation there, and and Tanya, that may sound harsh or unloving, but believe me, it's the most loving thing we can do. This is one of the reasons why, and you alluded to it. It's one of the reasons why we we are not big on discipleship or mentorship ministries as the Western Church has defined it. 
you know, to take somebody under our wing and to do one-on-one uh, counseling it's on a you know regularly repeating basis to to guide them to teach them and to tell them what they need to do really substitutes the work or the ministry of the holy spirit now we want to be available to people if they have questions but we want to teach people how to depend on jesus we want to teach people how to study their bible instead of asking somebody else about what the bible says And for new believers, this is going to happen a little bit more often, and that's okay. But as people grow in their walk with the Lord, what we need to do is teach them to find out for themselves what the Bible says. And and oftentimes, they already know what it says. They just don't want to do it. And like I said, Tanya, at that point, you've got to, wipe your hands of them, and, and then go and, and minister to somebody else that's willing to listen. And who knows? As you continue to pray for them, you're not mad at them, uh, you're not offended by them, but as you continue to pray for them, maybe the Lord will speak to their heart and they'll come back and say, hey, you know what, what you told me, I finally got it. And it's not because of anything you said, it's because of the Holy Spirit doing the work in their heart. So, so, Tanya, I hope that helps. Um, thank you for praying for Pastor Ron, and because you've already mentioned it, I know you, I know your heart. You are dealing with a lot of ministry there, and God bless you for that. God bless you for that. Keep ministering to the people around you, but make sure you give the Holy Spirit room to do what he wants to do in their hearts. Turn your attention to those that are listening. And when they, when they, if they stop listening, then you stop talking. It's always good to hear from you, Tanya. I have a question here that was submitted to our email inbox. So let me read this. This one says, our email inbox is from Luke, a sixth grader here at the Academy. I've got just under four minutes here, so I think I have time for this question. Did Catholics decide which books made it into the Bible? Why do some Bibles have extra books in them? Luke, great question. Got a couple of Catholic questions already. (laughs) So when it comes to the Bible, there is what we call the canon of Scripture, Now, the canon of Scripture is not man-made. The canon of Scripture is what determined sometime in the 3rd century, scholars, scriptural scholars, were going through and narrowing down the books into what they see was consistent with God's message, with the message of the early church. And that's where we ended up with the 66 books, I think, from the, the Council of hippo or something like that, but that's not really the important part. Your question, Luke, about, well, why do Catholics have extra books? Well, there's a couple answers to this, but but the general answer is they included books that were not inspired. How do we know they're not inspired? Not because of the canon, because the canon, remember, the canon was the group that, that created the canon these were scholars, but they weren't the replacement for God. They were led by the Spirit to, to narrow down the books into what we have as the Bible, but they were simply unpacking or unwrapping what God had already put together. And so it wasn't the men who made up this canon. Now, as far as uh, the Catholic Bible goes, there are between 7 and 14 extra books in what the Catholic Bible would say is their canon. And these books we don't include, and most of history doesn't include, because there are inconsistencies and contradictions within those within the Apocrypha, those seven or to twelve or seven to fourteen books. And there were guidelines that would help that people determine what the canon would include. All the books that we have referenced in the 27 New Testament letters, New Testament books, 
have all been codified and verified um, by the early church. The other extra apocryphal books are good history books, but they're not inspired. And the reason why we know that, Luke, is because they're not consistent with the other writings that we know to be inspired. Now, historically, they have value, but they're not the inspired Word of God. And like I said, it was that that council in the 3rd century, these men in the Council of Hippo, they helped put together the canon, but they didn't do the work. They were faithful to unwrap or unpack, but God had already determined to be his word before the beginning of time. So, Luke, I hope that makes sense. Great question, by the way. This, this is, again, another one that comes from the kids of our academy. I just love the fact that they are, uh, the kids are thinking about the scriptures in a deep way. And that means you're going to take it seriously as they grow in their walk with the Lord. What you're doing, Luke, is you're preparing yourself for a healthy walk with Jesus. You can hear the music. That means we've got a two-minute break. I'll be back after this. Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the Tuesday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. We are now entering into the second half of our show. That means some of you are just tuning in because you're on your way home from work. I know there's quite a few of you who who get off at this time, you hit the road, turn your radio on. And so thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Pastor Ken. I'm filling in for Pastor Ron today as I did yesterday. You can keep him in your prayers. He is still recovering from this bug, uh, and he doesn't want to be a distraction, so he's not yet ready to come back. And so uh, he sends his love. He misses you dearly. In the meantime, our show will continue as usual, we're here to take your questions, questions about the Bible, uh, questions about doctrine, questions about Jesus and how you can take the Word of God and make it applicable to your life. Well, that's why we're here, because our goal ultimately is this. We want to help you fall deeper in love with Jesus. And it's through His Word that you do that. 210 340 Nine five eight five. Toll free number is eight seven seven six three zero five seven five seven eight seven seven six three zero five seven five seven. Questions at Calvary SA. That's the email address. Questions at CalvarySA dot com. You can submit it that way. Your questions that way. You can use our church app to submit questions. You can use the KSLR app to tune in and listen. And even call in, especially if you're driving. It's much easier. Okay, well, let's jump right back to where our our questions are, where we left off. The next one is from Lee. Lee says, where was Jesus for the three days between his death and resurrection? Lee, Ephesians chapter 4 gives us insight into this. And I'm just going to read the beginning of this chapter It says there in verse 7, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, and he's going to quote here from, Paul's going to quote from the Psalms, and he's going to say, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now what happens in verse 9 is a parenthetical. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fulfill the whole universe. So here's what happened. Well, Jesus spent those days after he died on the cross, went down into Sheol. That's the place of the dead. Now, remember Luke chapter 16, Sheol had two compartments 
Abraham's bosom, and the other place was the place of torment, and between them was a chasm that uh, that could not be crossed. And so when Jesus here went down to set captivity captive, he went to free those who were in Abraham's bosom. Those are the ones who died before Christ. They died in faith, but before the cross. So when Jesus died, he went down there to set them free. At the same time, he went to proclaim victory. Peter also mentions to us, proclaim victory to those that were in torment. He wasn't giving them a second chance, but he was proclaiming that death no longer has its sting over us. And that's what took place between the days when he was, uh, after he died on the cross. He went to go set captivity captive. Thank you for your question, Lee. That's that's a really good one. Uh, let's go back to our phone lines. We've got Ruben calling from Seguin. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ken. Uh, I want to thank you for answering my question yesterday. Uh, and after the break, you take your time to to uh, answer it. I really appreciate it. I have two questions. One, uh, first, um, the Jews, do they have a different Bible than we do? And the um, only reason I ask is because I, I saw this show with, I think they're called Messianic Jews, and they were saying, unless I misunderstood them, they were saying that our Jesus isn't the Messiah that the Jews per se talk about. And then the second thing, um, can people who have passed on, um, can they see us? The, and, and I'm taking a point of reference from, oh my God, I forgot the, the Bible verse. I had it and I knew I was going to lose it. But it's where Lazarus was in, in hell and he asked um Jesus chapter to, sixteen. Okay, yeah. Okay, so you know what I'm referring to. Yes. I'm taking that 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 uh that point of reference. Can people who pass on see us? Right. Good questions, Ruben. Uh, first of all, let me say you sound great. Sound like you're doing better, and we continue to pray for you. Thank you for listening. And so, uh, the first question. Well, let me take the second question. So, Luke sixteen is is a story. It's not a parable. Whenever Jesus uses names, that means he's talking about a real story. But if you look closely at the story in Luke 16, Lazarus and the rich man here, uh, there is no specific or explicit reference to uh, the rich man seeing people on earth. He's referencing his father and his brothers because he's saying, to Father Abraham, can somebody please go to them? And so uh, there's no biblical reference or, or principle that says that they're looking at the people here in heaven. Sometimes at funerals, you know, when I, and we do them often, when I hear people say things like, well, you know, I know that he's looking down on us or they're looking down on us. Now, um, I gently correct them. And I know what their heart's intent is, but I want to make sure we're biblically accurate here. If they're a believer, their eyes are fixed on Jesus. They don't want to see anything else. And, you know, I, I understand the sentiment when people say that they're looking down on us, but they're not. If they're in heaven, they're with Jesus there, there is no sadness, there is no sorrow, and their eyes are fixed on him. So uh, I hope that helps, Reuben. Uh, this, the first question uh, about the Jews in the Bible that they use. So I thought you were talking about Orthodox Jews, and, and so it's, you clarified it with the Messianic Jews. And so here's the thing, right? With Orthodox Jews would use what we call the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament. And, and that's what would be in circulation 
during the first century, which is often what Paul the Apostle would reference when he was quoting the Old Testament. Uh, but the Jews today, or those that call themselves to be Messianic Jews, uh, you know, the reason why they say that the, the Jesus that we believe in, or they make a distinction between the Jesus that we believe in, by and large, has a lot to do with what they perceive to be Western, westernized Christianity. Those who are of Jewish descent cling to the Messiah, and and they look at you know what the the Western Church has done with 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 Jesus and and commercialized him, and they've made. Uh, you know, we've made in our church culture church to be a performance. And they get offended by that. Uh, they may use the same Bible or similar manuscripts, but but the reason why, a big reason why they make a distinction and separate themselves is because, and part of it, you know, there's, Understandable. Part of it is understandable because, in their mind, their Messiah is still is not somebody who would be entertained by uh, the performances and the concerts that that some in the West would call church. Now, Messianic Jews also overemphasize their tie to the Jewish culture. One of the things that they don't keep in mind is that, you know, what Paul writes to the Galatians, there is no distinction between barbarian, Scythian, Jew, or Gentile, male or female, because in Christ we're all one. So there is no way, specific way, that church ought to look. Now, we don't want to over-commercialize it for sure. We don't want to do anything that takes our attention away from Jesus. But we also don't want to overemphasize the law and the fact that we are still tied to it. There are some that incorrectly teach that you need to be a Jew first before you can become a good Christian. And the Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, you know, the council there in Acts chapter 15, Paul was fighting against that very notion. And it, not only is it unfair... But it makes no sense to have Gentiles who were not raised in the law to be tied to it in order to become a Christian. So that's why Paul adamantly faced James and the leadership there in the Jerusalem church for this very reason. That they w wouldn't have the Gentiles circumcised or hold them to the law. Now that deviates a little bit from your question, but I think it highlights, Reuben, the distinction between what the Messianic Jews emphasize. So too much emphasis on the law and the, the, the Jewish culture when in Christ we are one. What church looked like here is going to be different than what church looks like, you know, in a different continent, sure. But we keep our focus on Jesus, who he is, the teaching of his word, and let the Holy Spirit do what he wants to do within the culture. So I hope that helps, Ruben. Thank you for your question. And again, it really is good to hear your voice. Let's move on with our questions. The next one is from David. This is a good one. Did Jesus really sweat drops of blood? Well, Luke chapter 22, that's exactly what it says. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So, the word here says that his sweat was like drops of blood. Not necessarily blood falling to the ground, but the word says that it was like drops of blood. If we read it at face value, the word like gives us the indication that this is a uh, uh, a simile, so it's it's that's how much he was sweating, and and the idea here is to communicate his heart in praying to the Father while he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
the other belief is that it could have been that he was sweating blood. There is a, a natural condition in which, through stress, the body can physically sweat drops of blood. It's called hematohydrosis, and it's possible. But again, when the Bible tells us that his sweat, Jesus' sweat, was like drops of blood falling to the ground, the word there, like, gives us an indication this is probably descriptive of how intensely he was praying to the Father. So, David, I hope that helps. Thank you very much for your question. Let's move on. Alan is the next one. Alan says, what was the purpose of the tabernacle being so specific? Well, Exodus chapter 25 through chapter 27, they give us, God gives Moses great instruction, great details. And yes, you're right, Alan, there are explicit details that he gives us that through the word, specifically given to, to Moses and how the tabernacle should be constructed. This is a good question, though. Why? Uh, what was the purpose of it being so specific? I think this is fascinating. And when you study the Old Testament, what you'll find is that the tabernacle is a picture of Jesus Christ. It was at the tabernacle. Remember, when they were traveling through the wilderness in Exodus chapter 40, that the cloud would cover the tent and the glory would fill the tabernacle. The tabernacle itself symbolized the presence of God. It pointed us, though, ultimately to Jesus. Remember the things that were kept inside the Ark of the Covenant, inside the tabernacle. The three things all point us to Jesus Christ. We have the, the, the commandments there, the two tablets that were given. This we know is a picture of Jesus because he is, Jesus is the Word incarnate. He is symbolized through the Word. This is Jesus Christ to us. The second thing we have is the staff of Aaron. And remember, when we read about the staff, it was, a staff is made up of wood. Obviously, it's a dead piece of wood that's hardened. But Aaron's staff was placed inside the Ark of the Covenant because this a dead piece of wood that was Aaron's staff not only came alive, but it budded. It budded. This, again, a picture of Jesus coming alive. And the third thing was a jar of manna there. Some translations use the word bread. We know the story of manna literally means what is it? It was God's provision for desperate man, for desperate his desperate people. Again, pointing to Jesus being the bread of life. He is our sustenance. And he is God's provision for our sinful nature. So as you look at the intricacy in which the tabernacle is detailed in Exodus, chapter 25, 26, and 27 are so explicit because God reminds us that through these exquisite and explicit details, he's, point, he's painting a picture of Jesus Christ. And remember, too, this is the second thing about this, that the glory that filled that temple, the glory that filled that tabernacle, excuse me, and the cloud by day and the fire, the pillar of fire by night that accompanied them was all symbolic of God's glory, his presence being in that place. Well, today we don't need the tabernacle because that same glory of God lives in us. That's what Paul would write to the Colossians in the first chapter. Christ in us is the hope of glory. And it, it's fascinating, amazing. It's even, it should make us in awe. I was going to say the word amazing, but it's an overused word that sort of lost its meaning. But it truly is amazing when you consider that 
presence of God that accompanied the tabernacle, the glory that filled the tabernacle, is the same glory that lives in us as born-again Christians. The same. In the fullness of measure. Now, that should motivate us to live for His glory. So, thank you, Alan, for that question. The next one is from Anne. If Jesus left the earth and went to prepare a place for us, what happens to that place when God makes a new heaven and a new earth? If Jesus prepares a place for us, why would it get replaced? Uh, my, my small giggle there, Anne, at the end of your question is, is not at your question, but I, I, I giggle because this is a common misunderstanding. So let me turn to the passage. Uh, in John chapter 14, that's what you're referring to. And you remember when John, when John writes here, when Jesus was comforting his disciples, they re- realized that Jesus is about to leave them. And as the sense of his departure started to become real, they were getting very discouraged. They were going to feel like, well, what are you going to do without you? You're going to leave us. You're going to bet us. Where are you going to go? And this is what he says. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not tell you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. So what Jesus is talking about here, I said, is often misunderstood because of bad Bible teaching. So many TV programs have taken this passage and misconstrued it to say that Jesus is building us a nice house in heaven. And I can't wait to go into this house because he's taken a long time. So this house must be really nice. Some would even go so far to incorrectly teach that God is building them mansions. And I'm going to have a big mansion because of the faithfulness I've had and the fruit that I produce in my ministry. None of that is true. That's not what this is about. These, this place or these rooms are references to our glorified bodies. And so when Jesus is preparing a place for us, he's preparing us to occupy our glorified bodies. He's not building bodies or building, you know, robot bodies like Iron Man or something like that that need a whole bunch of technical work. No, we're going to receive our glorified bodies to be with him in heaven, ruling and reigning and in ways that we can't understand. Our bodies are going to need to sustain a lot of work, do a lot of work. But he's preparing us for that time when we would receive our glorified bodies. So there is no specific geographical location that's going to be destroyed. There's no uh, um, room or mansion that Jesus has been working on for, for a long, long time. What he's referring to here is our glorified bodies. And the preparation is taking place now. So, and I hope that makes sense. Um, in, the reason why I say this is often misunderstood is because, again, there's a lot of teachings that say, you know, what my mansion is going to be like and what, the, you know, what kind of car I'm going to drive and I'm going to drive on the streets of gold. And that's because we don't study our Bibles. So contextually here, remember, Jesus speaking to his disciples is encouraging them. Where he's going, they can't go there yet, but... He's preparing us to be there with him. And when you think about that, how we're going to rule and reign with Jesus in our glorified bodies, it gives us comfort and it helps us to understand that Jesus isn't 
working on a giant construction project here that's taken, you know, millennium. What he's doing is preparing our hearts, even today. And by preparing our hearts, we're being fruitful in ministry here while we occupy on earth until the time when we could be with him to rule and reign the heavens. That's the whole purpose of John chapter 14. Don't, don't be discouraged that the, the new heaven and the new earth is going to be, uh, that the earth and the heavens are going to be destroyed and a new heaven and a new earth are going to be constructed. What he's talking about here is preparing our hearts now to receive our glorified bodies so that when we're with him in heaven, we're not going to be sitting on clouds. We're not going to be playing harps. We're not going to be floating around in the air with wings. Those are all, you know, precious moments, cartoons that we've all looked at and watched when we were kids. That's not what it's going to be like. We're going to serve Jesus. We're going to worship him. We're going to look into the eyes of the one who died for us the one who never quit on us, the one who never abandoned us. And occupying today, walking with him, growing in our faith is how we become prepared. We get prepared for that time. Well, you can hear the music. That means we are at the end of the Tuesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. Be prepared for tomorrow because I might be back. See you then, 4 o'clock. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. AM 630, The Word. We hope you've enjoyed The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron. You can find out more about Pastor Ron and all of the folks over at Calvary Chapel by logging on to calvarysa.com. Once again, calvarysa.com.